Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to Zephaniah. We're doing a series here in this Minor Prophet, and it's, it's a hard book. And so we've been, uh, we've been working through it, and um, today we had some questions that are raised, and it reminded me of a few months ago, I can't quite remember when, I was visiting Jackie and, and my, my granddaughter Leah and grandson Owen, and Jackie kind of gave me a heads up, and she said, Dad, uh, Leah's having some questions about the Trinity. She's four. Um, and so I was kind of trying to prepare myself, you know, how do you explain the Trinity, the whole egg thing, the shell, and, the, you know, the white and the yolk, and, you know, there's the, the husband and father and, you know, worker, and all these different things. And I had read this article that talked about how love, you know, for God so loved, that one of the assurances we have is that God first loved in a relationship. In other words, we know what love is because we've experienced it. And so God experienced love in the Trinity. And so I was trying this new approach of this article I just read and explained how you know how you know mommy loves you and because of what she says and her actions and how mommy loves daddy and all these. You know, I, I, was, I was preaching pretty good, I thought. And at the end, she just kind of looked at me. And then she just went, Shook her head no and walked off. That was it. I mean, total failure. I mean, the Trinity's hard, but, you know, uh, sometimes when we ask questions, we end up with more questions. And uh, Zephaniah, it's tough. We started off, let me just kind of remind you, Zephaniah has some bookends here. It starts off with total destruction, and it ends, we haven't gotten there yet, with God's people and God's place living in God's presence. And he talks about all this judgment that is to come. And, and now we're going to move in today into these judgments of the nations. And I'm just going to tell you right now, he doesn't even say why. Zephaniah doesn't mention why the judgment is coming. And so that's the big question that kind of comes up in Zephaniah. And let me just tell you, Zephaniah is supposing that you've read the other minor prophets. And so remember, Zephaniah is just kind of a, a summary. And so he's expecting that you've already read all the other prophets up to this point and specifically Amos, okay, which we actually did a series on a few years ago. So just so you know, God isn't just doling out judgment here. Um, it's all been spoken for in the other prophets, and Zephaniah is just reminding of this. So we start off with a judgment passage, and then we had last Sunday, we had this kind of more hope seeking after the Lord, and then we have a judgment passage. And just so you know, Zephaniah ends on an on a up note, but we're kind of going judgment, peace, judgment, peace, judgment. So we've got a little bit of a judgment passage today, and I think some great things that we can learn from this. Remember that uh, Zephaniah is teaching us that we should live with the end in mind. In other words, that we're all going to stand before God and give an account, and we need to be ready to do that. Uh, Zephaniah is reminding us that one day the Lord's going to come, and he's going to reward his people, the remnant, and he's going to judge those who are not following after him. And so it's, it's meant to grab our attention. And he's reminding us to seek after the Lord. We read those uh, verses uh, uh, 1 through 4 in chapter 2 last week. We're going to pick up in verse 5. Woe to you, inhabitants of the sea coast. Oh, let me start. Verse 4. I skipped to verse 5. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall be, become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cher Cherisites. 
The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. O you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze in the house of Ashkelon. And they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the rivalings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nestles and salt pits and wastes forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and their survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nation. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall, uh, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for the cedar work will be laid bare. This is an exalted city. They live securely. They said in their heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lyre for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. So we're looking again at this judgment of the nations, and we're going to look at the accountability of the nations, the opportunity of the nations, and our responsibility to the nations. First of all, the accountability of the nations. Zephaniah is calling them out, and the first thing that we want to see is the place of God's judgment. Uh, there is something very uh, specific here that uh, Zephaniah is doing that you don't quite see probably as you're reading it. These cities don't uh, grab your attention, except maybe the Philistines. If you've been around, you kind of maybe heard that one and the Canaanites. And so some of them do, but let's just kind of put these nations on a map in our mind here. In verses four through seven, he's pointing to the west, the west of Jerusalem. This is the, the coastal land. This is the land of the Philistines. And he's naming some of the cities there. And that's the region to the west. In verses 8 through 11, he moves east, and he mentions Moab and Ammon. These are on the other side of the Jordan River, and these are their neighbors to the east. He then has just one verse for Cush in the south. Uh, there's some debate about this. Why not mention Egypt? And some people just summarize that this was probably the nation that had the most power at this period when Zephaniah is writing. But I think he just means the whole southern region there below, and we're going quite a bit low. This is, this is Cush, it's just above where Egypt would be. Now, the, the one nation here then to the north is Assyria, and he mentions Nineveh by name. Uh, this would technically be northeast of Jerusalem. 
Uh, but when Assyria attacks, they come directly from the north. They come over west and then down, and so they are their, their enemies to the north. And so he draws a map here. He goes west, east, south, north. And just so you know, next Sunday, he's going to zero in on Jerusalem. And, and this is the exact pattern that Amos used. Uh, he did the same thing. He mentioned all these cities, and then he comes and he just zeroes in on Israel. And so we have this kind of repeating of this type of theme. Uh, but the place of God's judgment is all around. Everyone. He's, he's to the west, to the east, to the south, to the north. That's the point that we're supposed to get from this. Uh, the purpose of God's judgment. Uh, again, I said he didn't necessarily mention uh, the reasons. Uh, he does a little bit with uh, Moab and Ammon, but he doesn't, he doesn't give all the whys to this. We see this in other places. But when we're talking about God's judgment, the purpose of it. Look, uh, there's so many people that want to freak you out in the world today, okay? And, you know, eventually um, the Bible does say that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. I believe it's more of a recreation than a total destruction. But, but you know, the world is not going to come to an end uh, because uh, we, we uh, use up too much of the sun's fuel or, or, you know, whatever. I mean, don't get me wrong. We should take care of our planet. And we should you know, be good stewards of what God has given us. The world's not going to end because, you know, nuclear war all over the entire planet, although, you know, it might destroy a few nations here and there, and we should strive for peace. The world is going to end, if you want to look at it that way, because God says it's going to end. It's going to end at his word. He is the one that is going to bring this about. And so what is the purpose of disaster and restoration that he is teaching throughout this book? The first of all is dependent on the word of the Lord. Woe to you, verse 5, inhabitants of the seacoast. You nation, the word of the Lord is against you. This, this happens because God speaks it to happening. He, he declares it. Okay, and Frank, I've, it's been so hard not to pick on you, know, you, you here, but you know, the seacoast is getting a revamp here, okay? Not Yahats, but it's close. It's second, it's also based on the promise of the Lord. So here's a little uh, pick, look at verse 7. And he talks again about the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. If you go back when the tribes were divided, the seacoast region was Judah's inheritance. But they never fully took it from the Philistines. There were times when they ruled, periods of time where they ruled over the Philistines during the end part of David's reign and Solomon's reign, but they never fully took it. And so what God is saying is, I'm going to give you what I promised to give you. That was your land. And, and so God is in his judgment, listen, Church, God in his judgment is fulfilling his promises to his people. What a beautiful picture here. And not only do they get the land, but he says, be mindful, I will restore their fortunes. He says, I'm not only going to give it to them, but I'm going to bless them in it. And so God's bringing of disaster and restoration comes because it's dependent on the Lord, it's based on the promises of the Lord, and is for the good of God's people. Again, restoring their fortunes in verse 7. 
Um, verse 6 is a beautiful picture. This seacoast is turned into beautiful pasture land. It's going to be a place for, for the sheep to dwell and, and God's people to live in peace. And then he also says, look at verse 9, Therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. We'll come back to that. A land place possessed by nestles and pines, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them. Look, again, God's judgment, it's by his word. It fulfills his promises and it becomes a blessing to his people. It's a beautiful picture. You want to be on the right side of this. The disaster and restoration, it's, it's also a reaction to the pains of God's people. He says in here, I, I've heard the taunts. I've heard the rivalings, and I'm tired of it. I, I'm, at one point, God's people are crying out for justice. God's people are crying out for peace. God's people are, are crying out that these disasters would end and at some point in time, God is going to answer that. It's a reaction to God's people praying and seeking him. Disaster and restoration is ultimately for the glory of God. Ultimately, what God is doing is not just a blessing to us, but that he might be praised and honored. When we look at judgment, we see it so often just and I, don't get me wrong, people, people are being punished for what they did. People are being cast out for rejecting God. People are being left out because they didn't want a part of it. And so judgment is coming. But God's people are being cared for in the, profit, in the process. So we see the place of God's judgment. Second, we see the purpose of of God's judgment. And third, we see the personal nature of God's judgment. At the end of verses, verse 9 and even all the way back to verse 8, we have this, uh, how they have taunted my people. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my people shall possess theirs. In verse 9, and then in verse 10, against the people of the Lord of hosts. God sees what is happening as a personal assault. There is a relationship involved here. Let me just put it another way. One of the popular phrases that a mom uses, I see this all the time, don't make the mama bear come out, right? You know what they mean by that. It's like you be careful what you do or say to my kids because you don't want to upset the mama bear. God is not distant and unaware of what's going on. At some point, dad comes home and he sees what's happening to his people. He knows what's happening, but he takes care of them. These are my people. And so there's a personal nature to God's judgment. We can talk about the pace of God's judgment at doesn't kind of come out as much in, in the English, but in verse 4, uh, Gaza shall be uh, des uh, deserted and Ashkelon will become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out by noon. It's, this is going to happen in a day. This, is just, this just happens. 
It's fast. The pace of God's judgment. And then finally, the perfection of God's judgment. It's, it's total. It's complete. Um, when we read here uh, about Nineveh, uh, verse 10, uh, he will make Nineveh a desolation. This is part of Assyria. Uh, Herds shall lie down in her midst and all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. The voice shall hoot in the window. Right? The wall of Nineveh was incredible in its day. Miles around the city. Uh, it was said to be uh, wide enough for three chariots to ride along its top. Nineveh sat up there and said, Na-na-na-na-na. You can't get me. And Nineveh was destroyed like that. And he says, you think you're so safe? Man, animals are going to be living in those walls that you once felt secure under. The owl is going to be hooting. Wild animals are going to be walking through your city. When God's judgment comes, it's total. It, it, it's complete. We see its results, and, and its purpose is, again, God's judgment is being at His truth, His righteousness, His holiness, but He is also caring for his people. Next, we want to look at the opportunity of the nations. Um, you know, it starts off here for Gaza. Woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast. But remember, it really comes with this verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this call to seek the Lord. And then after this seek the Lord, he starts with for Gaza. Here, here's seek the Lord because this is what's going to happen. And so the call here is also to the nations to seek the Lord. They have an opportunity to seek for him. Um, if we look at verse 11, verse 11 is just this beautiful uh, piece of, of hope in the midst of all this judgment. Um, I mean, we have the, the, the pasture lands and the seacoast, which is beautiful. And then verse 11, the Lord will be awesome against them. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nation. Everyone will bow down before the Lord. Um, I'm just going to give you a little picture of where that's coming. And, and if you turn over to chapter 3, verse 9, uh, we hear the same type of language. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. You see, the nations are now a part of this beautiful picture of God's people coming together. When they seek the Lord, when they, when they will come and bow down to him. It's a, it's a beautiful picture that Zephaniah is beginning to paint here. And uh, there's hope in it. You know, he then calls us, I think, also to serve the Lord. Remember, we talked about last week, God did not deliver us so that we can do what we want. God delivered us so that we can serve him. 
We need to live life with the end in mind. And we need to remember that God's deliverance isn't just so we can do whatever we want. It's so that we can serve him. And then as we come into chapter 3, and we're a part of these nations. We're not a part, most of us here, of Israel. We're reminded of the opportunity that we have through Jesus Christ to respond to the King of Kings. You know, Jesus said when he came, he said, I did not come to abolish the prophets, but to fulfill them. Every word. And one of the things that we've used in, in churches today, and it, we've, we've just eased those words a little bit too much. Oh, it means we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. It means we get to eat bacon, right? It means we get to have ham at Easter or whatever. No, Jesus is saying is that all these things the prophet said, I've come to fulfill, including Zephaniah. I'm the fulfillment of that. We get to seek the Lord. We get to bow our knee to the King of Kings. So we're reminded that we are accountable to God. That we have an opportunity to respond to him. And then third, as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to the nations. You know, these, this idea of evangelism and making disciples, it's, it's not just a New Testament thing. We were created as God's image bearers. And today, you and I are Jesus' hands and feet to other people. God told Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him. And he tells us to go into all the world and tell them about Jesus. In Exodus chapter 9, it says, Know him that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And then we're sent to all the earth. When we see God's people leaving Egypt, it actually tells us it was a mixed multitude. In other words, there were some Egyptians that got it and said, can we go with you? And when God's people, when God's power works through God's people, other people want to join. God told Israel that they would be a light to the nations. Jesus told us we're to be the light of the world. These aren't new concepts. We have a responsibility to the nations. The purpose of God's, God's people from the very beginning is to be fruitful. God sets Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says, be fruitful. And when he, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he says, you guys aren't bearing fruit. This is going to be taken from you and given to others. Like when the Pharisees and Sadducees heard that. They got mad. They wanted to kill him. Because Luke records, they thought he was speaking about them. He was. Yes, you get it. We're to be fruitful. We're to multiply. The idea is God's people taking God's image and God's message throughout the world. We're to multiply. I love that he used multiplication, not addition. It's faster. Right? We're, we're supposed to make disciples. We're to make disciples. We're to fill the earth with God's image. You are image bearers. But listen, those people that you're angry at, 
Those people that are making laws you don't like. Those neighbors who park all their cars on their lawn. Don't pick up after their dog. You know what? They're also created in the image of God. And their image has been marred by sin. And you know what? Your image has been marred by sin. You're being redeemed. Molded and shaped into the image of God through the Holy Spirit living in you, through God's word and God's people. But we must recognize the image of God in those around us and their value. God calls us to be a blessing. The old covenant of Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless others. And as the church of God, if we just receive God's blessing, but don't share it with others, then God is not glorified. And we've talked about this over and over again. I'm just, I just see that image, just God blesses us that we might bless others so that God is glorified. That's, that's been the picture from the beginning. But the f- problem is, is when we get blessing, we're like, this is kind of nice. This is comfortable. This is good. Peter says, let's make some tents and live up here on this mountain. She says, no, we're going back off the mountain. We're, we're, we're sent out to be a blessing to other people. In 1 Corinthians, we're called to be ambassadors. We, that God has redeemed us so that we might be ambassadors to others. We've, we've talked about this. What does it mean to be an ambassador? We're, we're not revealing our self or our thoughts. We're, we're to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Of his love and his way of doing things. We're called to be ambassadors for God. And finally, uh, we got two more. To be peacemakers, uh, preachers. Let me, let me look at here at uh, Romans. I forgot to write this one down. Um, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building as someone, um, I'm building on someone else's foundations. You know, we're all called in one way or another to be, to be a preacher. Now, I, and I've been a pastor for so many years and and uh, I, I had one, one uh, person in my congregation lo- love call me uh, uh, the preacher boy. I was a lot younger then. Um, and, I, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a fond statement. And, and you know, you're the preacher. You're, you're the preacher. You're the pastor. We're all called to be priests. We're all called to be ambassadors. Your preaching doesn't have to be up here on the X that I'm standing on. Okay, but, but in your own place, you're called to be a preacher. You're called to share. That doesn't mean every time you do it that it's, something's going to work out. And, you know, people don't always like the pastor or the preacher. That's just part of it. People don't like Jesus, right? But we're called to do it anyway. And then finally, we're called to be stewards. We were reading uh, in Luke this week this story of of the minas, and, and you know, he, the king has said, I'm, I'm leaving, and I'm, you guys are responsible for this, and I'm going to come back, and you're going to give an account. And, and one guy invested in 
five and got ten and, you know, this story. And one guy's like, what do I do with these? So he buries them. Look, I, I got exactly what you gave me. A little dirty, but we have it. Jesus doesn't say, thank you, you're a good steward. You've cared for what I give. No, he says, what you're, you're wicked servants. Why don't you at least invest it? And too often when we use the word steward, what we mean is, I need to care for what I have. What the Bible means when it's talking about that is how are you investing to be fruitful, to multiply, to preach the gospel in all the nations. And this is a good conservative Baptist church. And so the answer has always been, and to some degree or another, we have missionaries all over the world. Praise God for that. Thank you for your giving and your investment. I have a secret for you. We have missionaries right here. Right here. And I'm not just talking about Russ. You're called to be a missionary. And if we're not, then we're not going to be able to support those that are abroad. I remember one time I was, I was really proud of a trip we were taking. Uh, I was a youth pastor, and we were taking a group of kids to Mexico. And I was really excited about it until I was talking with one of my Christian uncles. And he said, well, why are you doing that? I said, wow, you know, kids learn about evangelism, and they learn about serving, and they, they learn this, and, you know, just blah, blah, blah. I was all excited. And he goes, well, are they doing it at home? No, not really. If you're not doing it here, we took the trip. But I didn't appreciate his words. Are we doing it right here? We have a responsibility to the nations. And we have a responsibility, Hillsborough. In fact, that's where Zephaniah is going to circle in next week. But I won't preach that sermon now. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we come to you understanding um, your grace and mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. We, we recognize in that moment that uh, we are fully and completely dependent on you. And so God, we thank you that you lead us and guide us. Uh, we thank you that you fill us with your spirit. And Lord, we, we sang this morning, we just surrender ourselves to the gospel work, and to what you've called us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.